God bless you. It's good to be here tonight, isn't it? Amen. The Lord has prepared a table for us. And we're going to sit at the table of the Lord and we're just going to take in everything that he wants to feed to our spirits. Amen. God is so good. At our church, when I say God is so good, they say, and then they say all the time. I also say Dios es bueno. Todo el tiempo. Well, that's a little bit of translation we'll give you tonight. Pastor King was sharing that you've set us a week aside to talk about putting God first, putting him first in your life. And I just want to share a little bit about that tonight. But before I do that, can we pray and prepare our hearts to get into the word together now? Father, we thank you for gathering us here tonight. You have gathered us. And now we're here, Lord, in your presence. We're sitting at your feet and we're hungry to hear what you want to speak to us, Lord. So we come before you now, God, and we open up our hearts, we open up our minds, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just come down and begin to speak to us deeply. We pray that you would break chains. We pray that you would correct. We pray that, Lord, that you would give us understanding of what you require of us. And we ask, Lord, that as we gather here tonight and we we go into Scripture together, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the Word only, but doers as well, so that we do not deceive ourselves, as James says. So, Lord, we hear what you have to say. But, Lord, we pray and declare that we will do what you have us do in your name. Holy Spirit, just come and lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Putting Jesus first. Oftentimes when we talk about putting Jesus first, we think about what that looks like for us. We individualize it. This is what putting Jesus first looks like in my life. What does putting Jesus first look like in your life? But when we go to scripture, we find that Jesus told us what it looks like. And we're supposed to look at what Jesus said, putting him first looks like, And we're supposed to do that. He did not leave us in the dark. He did not leave us wondering, Lord, what does it look like for you to be number one in my life? There were seven things that Jesus said. Not that it would be good if we did them, but that we would have to do if he was going to be number one in our lives. I want to talk tonight about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because disciples put Jesus first. Now the word disciple is a really important word. It's not one that we often use today when we're talking about the believer. Usually when we talk about the body of Christ, we use the word Christians. We use the word believers. And those words are fine and they're biblical. But they appear very few times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word Christian appears three times. The word believer, two times. The word disciple, 269 times. You and I are to be disciples of Jesus. So if that's the word that is often used in Scripture when referring to those that are born again, then let's take a look for a moment at what the word disciple means. Because the disciple understands what it means to put Jesus first. The word disciple basically means a pupil or a student. 
someone that is not just learning kind of like we do when we go to college in our generation and in our, in our culture, but in Jesus' time when the word student was used, it meant not just someone that takes in information and learns information, but if you said that you were someone's pupil or someone's disciple, what you were saying is that you were dedicated to what they were teaching. Not only did you learn what they were teaching, not only did you memorize their sayings, not only could you quote them um, often, but you were dedicated to it, you were committed to it, and it meant that your lifestyle imitated that of your teacher. The word teacher, rabbi, had a lot more weight than it does for us today in our culture. But the body of Christ, when they spoke of one another... And when they would speak to one another, they would refer to each other as disciples of Jesus, imitators of Jesus, those that learn from Jesus. A disciple, for a disciple, he understood, he or she understood that to be a disciple of Jesus meant that they were in a long life process. It wasn't a class. It wasn't you get to sit and listen to Jesus talk on the, uh, on the side of a boat and now you've become a disciple of Jesus. No, that's just a listener. That's just someone that's, that's kind of listening to him speak. A disciple is someone that would not only listen, but their entire life would be spent learning and learning and learning from that person. It was a lifelong commitment. If we say we're disciples of Jesus, then we're saying we're going to have a lifelong commitment. The Bible clearly tells us that we are to become disciples of Jesus. And it says that we're to make disciples. We're to be disciples and we're to make disciples. Now, I wanted to talk about what a disciple is because when Jesus talked about what a disciple is, he said what it required for us to be a disciple. As I mentioned, when I first began to speak, you don't get to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus and this is what it looks like for me. Jesus said, unless you do this, unless you do that. You cannot be my disciple. And when you look at the the requirements of being a disciple, what you see is that there is a there is a requirement that he be number 1 in your life. I want us to look at one of the first requirements of what it means to be a disciple. Go with me to Luke chapter 14 verse 26. One of the first things that I want to mention is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. One of the first things that Jesus requires of us is that he be the supreme love in your life, the most important relationship. If you're going to put God first, if you're going to say God is number one in my life, I'm a disciple of Jesus, then you have to be able to say that he is without a doubt the most important relationship in my life. Jesus uses hyperbole here to drive home a point that he's not willing to negotiate on. He says, if anyone comes to me, he says, and he does not do the following. He does not hate his father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if we're going to say Jesus is number one, 
then it means that he is the number one relationship in my life. One of the things that grieves me as a pastor is when I'll see someone come to Christ and be born again and begin to walk with the Lord. And then all of a sudden they've got these relationships in their life that begin to resist their walk with Christ and watch them begin to pull away from the Lord because they're choosing between their parents and Christ. They're choosing between their girlfriend or their boyfriend or Christ. They're choosing between their friends and Christ. Everybody that walks with Jesus Christ has to come to that crossroads where they say Jesus Christ is number one. I'll abandon him for no one. I'll abandon him for no one. Is there any relationship in your life? Is there any person in your life, no matter how near and how dear to your heart, that competes with your love for Christ? That competes for your hearts? You have to settle that if he's going to be number one. Jesus Christ has to be the love of your life. In that love that we have for him, we then understand how to love our parents, how to love our spouses, how to love our brethren, how to love our children, how to love even our enemies. But first, he has to be that number one love in our life. So it starts with with him being the supreme number one relationship in our lives. That's what it means for him to be first. It's a relational choice. He's the most important relationship in my life. I've shared this in church before. Uh, it's it's, It's something that I want to share. My dad said when he was dying, my father passed away about 15 years ago. And it wasn't an instant death. He became ill. So it was about a three-week process. Towards the end, we were in Chicago at the hospital. And we were praying, praying that God would do a miracle. We had hundreds of people literally praying that he would be healed. It was on the radio and people were calling in. And and I was crying out to God, oh God, would you please heal him? And there was this, this, this clamor up before the Lord. Lord, would you raise him up? Would you heal him? And there came a process. There, In the process of him getting ready to pass away, he began to understand that the Lord was calling him home. He could also see that particularly myself and my siblings couldn't accept that at the moment. We couldn't accept that the Lord would be calling in home. So he had a private conversation with my mother. And, he, and it was just the two of them. And he, it was very difficult for him to speak. And I'm the youngest of five. My oldest brother is Eric. Then it's Bradley, Danny, Monica, and me. And my father looked at my mother and he said to her, I love you. He said, I love you. But I love Jesus more. And he says, I love Eric. It's the oldest. He started with the oldest. But I love Jesus more. He said, I love Bradley. Tell Bradley that I love him. But then I love Jesus more. Tell Danny that I love him. But tell him that I love Jesus more. Tell Monica that I love her, but tell her that I love Jesus more. And would you tell Maria that I love her, but that I love Jesus more, and Jesus is calling me home. My mother listened to my father and said, yes, I will tell them that. It was, I could, my mother had the wisdom not to say that to us at the very moment. She let us go ahead and bury my father and grieve. And at the right moment, she said, you know, he knew he was going home. He was at peace. And this is what he said. You know, when my mother shared those words for me, I didn't feel offended. I didn't feel abandoned. I didn't feel angry. I understood. I understood 
that how much he loved my mother, how much he loved his children. He heard the Lord calling him home and he, and he went and he went. He submitted to what God was doing in his life in that moment. The number one relationship in your life, Jesus Christ. There's a second thing that Jesus said that you need to be able to do in order to be his disciple. And if you're a disciple, this is what it looks like for him to put him first. I want you to go with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The first thing that Jesus says in that scripture is he says that if anyone wishes to come after me, he's going to have to deny himself. So if you say, I'm going to put the Lord first, the first thing that you say is that there is no other earthly relationship that is more important to me than my relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, I'm going to have to deny myself. I'm going to have to deal with my ego. I'm going to have to deal with my passions. I'm going to have to deal with my dreams. I'm going to have to deal with my desires and I'm going to have to tell those things that they're going to have to die. And that whatever God requires of me, if it goes against what I want, those things are going to have to die to deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? It literally means when you look at the root word to disown yourself, to renounce yourself. To say, you, you are no longer the one that is alive, but the one that is alive is Christ. There is a disowning of the self. Now the world will tell you something completely different. The world will tell you, find yourself. And when you find yourself, make yourself happy. Make everything rotate around you. But Jesus said, if you want to put me first, deny yourself. Disown yourself, renounce yourself. To disown yourself and to deny yourself means you're no longer in charge of your life. You're not in charge anymore. It means also that you've renounced control and that now you're completely submitted to the will of God. To deny yourself is that I am submitted to the will of God. There's an author by the name of William McDonald and he said it this way. To deny the self means that the self abdicates the throne. So the self is sitting on the throne, but when Jesus is number one, the self gets off the throne and Jesus takes the throne and Jesus takes control of your life. It is completely an absolute experience. He's the king. He's in charge. That's what it means. And Jesus said, this is what it looks like. He said, don't try to figure out what it looks like to have me first. I'm telling you that this is what it looks like. So Jesus said, you must deny yourself. It's more than asceticism. You know what asceticism is? It's basically when you begin to um, deny pleasures in order to deepen your spirituality, like fasting and, and you know, um, renouncing wealth and that sort of thing. That, that it does involve that to a certain degree, but it's much more than that. It's where God's will reigns in your life. Even if you're doing what God asks of you with tears, even if you're doing what God asks of you suffering, his will reigns in your life. It means that you relinquish. I mean, you completely relinquish 
any ambition that is your own. Any ambition that is your own. You know, people sometimes get nervous with that. You mean everything. I mean everything. I mean everything. One time we were having a conference and my parents were missionaries for for many years. And uh, my mother and my father were founders. And so they said, this young person stood up. We had a question and answer period. And this young person stood up and said, Pastor Gloria, I want to know. I want to know. What does it cost to follow Jesus? Because she had shared her testimony of how my father and her had, you know, left their country and, and shared the whole story. And he said, what does it cost to follow Jesus? And she was really quiet. And I was thinking to myself, is she going to talk about leaving Canada? Is she going to talk about this? Is she? And, I, and I really was thinking that. And then she just leaned into the microphone and she said, everything. It costs you everything. Following Jesus means relinquishing it all. It means renouncing your perceived rights. We all feel we have rights. We all feel that we have a right to this and we have a right to that. But when Jesus Christ is number one in your life, you have no rights. All that matters is that Jesus Christ be glorified in your life. So where you live, where you work, what church you go to, what ministry you're in, all of those things, you don't have a say in any of it. The Spirit of the Lord decides it all. You have no rights. You know, some people, when they go looking for the church, they go in, you know, maybe they're trying to find the place where they belong in, and they'll come up with a list of things to say, this is the church where I belong. And usually the list of things rotates around where they live. How far is it from their house? It rotates around the income. It rotates around the conditions of the building. Do they have a youth group? Do they have a children's place? Do they have this? Do they have that? But when you belong to Jesus, you don't even have a right to to ask for any of those things. You say, Lord, is this where you want me? And the Lord might place you in a large church that is thriving. The Lord might take you to a tiny little corner of the city where you're doing a ton of the work by yourself. I don't know. The Lord might take you out of your nation and send you to another nation. But we have no rights when we follow Jesus. That's what it looks like when Jesus Christ is number one. And Jesus said, anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself. You give up your dreams. You give up your plans. You give up all for Jesus. It means you understand how to lose in order to win. Anybody that has Jesus Christ as number one in their life knows what it feels like to lose. They know what it feels like to give things up. And they know what it feels like to win. To be smack in the middle of the will of God. And nobody gets there without giving something up. Jesus said it. That's not me. He said, anybody that wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Then he went on to say, not only must he deny himself, he must take up his cross. Now, oftentimes when we look at this, we say, deny yourself and take up your cross. They're together. And again, Jesus is using hyperbole. Not all of us are going to go and die on a cross. That's usually how we hear it preached. But I see two things that Jesus is pointing out here. 
First, he talks about the egos, the dreams, the me, the things that I want, the self, the self, the demands that requires. Then he says, and take up his cross. You know what I hear when I see take up his cross? A willingness to literally die. To give up your life for Jesus. I remember um, the first time I ever pondered that, I was 14 years old. Some missionaries had come to speak and they were talking about these uh, teenage girls. And I don't remember the country because I was a teenager. I don't remember. But all I remember is that they were sharing about these two teenage girls. And they were my age. And that's why it stood out to me. They were like 14 and 15. And these two girls um, had been sequestered. And um, many people had been killed for the gospel. And these two girls were given the opportunity to decide in one night, the next day, whether or not they would die. They had witnessed the murder of their parents because their parents would not renounce their faith. And these girls were asked whether or not um, they would renounce Christ. And I was listening and these two young girls did not renounce Jesus. They stood firm in their faith. And it, and it didn't, and, and at the end they were killed. There was no grand rescue that came in at the end. There was no, no miracle that happened in that moment that would save their lives. Um, they died. They died for their faith. And I remember listening to um, the, the missionary. It wasn't even like a big meeting. It was like a, at a campground. In, and I was sitting there with about maybe 15 or 16 teenagers. We were there. And as, as um, the speaker was speaking, my heart began to struggle because I thought to myself, could I really die for Jesus? Could I really pick up a cross like a death sentence on me? Could I carry a death sentence on my back? For Jesus. And I remember being in turmoil that night. And I remember crying. And I remember thinking, but I'm just so young. I don't know if I want to pray that prayer. And I want to say, yes, yes. I'll be willing to die for Jesus. And I remember making the decision. And having a very simple prayer. Between me and the Lord. And saying, Lord Jesus, I will die for you. And as I was praying it, my heart was beating fast. And I was nervous and I was scared. Because see, I wasn't raised in the nation. I know what it looks like to have soldiers on the street. I know what it looks like that every corner you go to, they have machine guns. I know what it looks like when I walk around my neighbor and and the guards have machetes. And I know what it looks like to see people murdered. And so to me, it was very real. And I remember I said, yes, Jesus, I'll pick up my cross. I pick up my cross. You know, I prayed that prayer with so much fervor and I got into it so much that when I was 18 years old and the Lord told me I'd be staying in the United States, I actually mourned. I said, here, God, but it's just so easy here. And the Holy Spirit had to redirect me and say, I'm in charge. You're going to be staying in the U.S. of A. And I remember saying, I accept the call for the United States of America, Lord. But I had to go through that process where I took Jesus literally, take up my cross. And then he said, follow me, follow me to have Jesus Christ. Number one in your life means that you're willing to follow him. That what that implies is a lifelong pursuit of Christ. Everywhere he goes, you're following him. Wherever he leads, you're right behind him in self-denial and taking up your cross. That's happening constantly, but it is a lifelong walk 
with Jesus Christ. Pick up your cross and follow me. So it's not just about saying, okay, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. That's denying the self. I'm not going to be self-centered anymore. That's denying the self. It's also about taking up your cross, being willing to die for Christ. It's also about willing to follow him wherever he may lead you. And God can lead you to some places you never want to go. Places that you would rather not be. Places that are inconvenient. But he will lead you there. Are you willing to follow him there? Are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he takes you? Literally. Not, you know, metaphorically. Literally. Wherever he may lead you. That's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. People with this kind of mindset. People with these kind of conscious choices. People that have literally looked at everything and said, I release it. I relinquish it for Jesus Christ. And so these people become very useful in the kingdom of God. Because wherever the spirit of the Lord wants to move, he's got someone to send. We have so many believers in our churches and so few disciples. So few disciples. Because this is what a disciple looks like. And you and I need to become disciples of Jesus. So when we talk about putting Jesus first, it's not just about saying, I just love you so much, Jesus. When you say, I'm going to put you first, get ready for the Spirit of the Lord to confront you. Get ready for the Spirit of the Lord to come at you. Get ready for the Spirit of the Lord to take over. Get ready to grieve the loss of some things. Get ready for God to say no more of that attitude and no more of this. And I want you to sell this and I want you to sell that. Get ready. If you want him to be number one in your life, he defines what it looks like. He defines it. Not only must we be willing to die. You know what? I want to stop and read in Acts chapter 5 verse 40, 41. Because there it talks to us about when the disciples were flogged. It says that the apostles were flogged. And it says that they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Okay, so they had been speaking in the name of Jesus. They were taken in. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were ordered to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. This is what apostles and this is what disciples looks like. People that have Jesus Christ number one. After they took the beating, it says that they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing... Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. We often feel relief if we're not counted worthy. Woo. And it says that they rejoiced because like we were, God found us worthy. He saw in us such a determination to, to stand up for him that we were able to take a beating. Hallelujah. God saw something in me I didn't even see in myself. And I came through it and I preached his name and I was faithful. This is what a disciple's heart looks like. Hallelujah. You rejoice in what you lose. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 27, it says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. If you want to save your life, if you want to go after self-preservation, you're going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. 
For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In this scripture, Jesus is just throwing out that challenge. Jesus is saying to those that are wanting to be his disciple, he says, and, and he says to them, anybody who wants to be my disciple must deny himself, must take up his cross, must follow me. And then he says, you're going to have to lose. So whenever you say to yourself and whenever you pray, you say, Jesus, be number one in my life. The first thing that Jesus is going to say, get ready to lose. Get ready to lose some things, but get ready to gain. Get ready to gain him. Get ready to gain his power. Get ready to gain discernment. Get ready to get understanding. Get ready to get the to gain the power of God flowing through your life. So we must be willing to die. We must be committed to following Jesus all of the days of our life. There can be no turning back. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus said, No no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Have you ever asked yourself if you're fit for the kingdom of God? I've asked myself that many times. Am I fit for this job, God? Am I fit for what you're asking me to do? And I'm not talking about my abilities. I'm not talking about my talents. I'm talking about my spiritual condition. Because it says that anyone that puts his hand to the plow and, and, and looks back is not worthy, is not fit for the kingdom of God. Once you give your, it all to Jesus. Now, I'm not just talking about being born again, where you get an understanding, you, you become converted, you're born again. But then you say, Lord, here's my life. I want to serve you with all I have. You put your hand to the plow and you say, God, I'm going to give you everything. But you look back and you say, I really miss what I gave up. I really miss those things that I let go of. If that's where you're at, you're not fit yet for the kingdom of God. To be fit for the kingdom of God is you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. Your focus is what God has set ahead for you. Your focus is the coming of the Lord. Your focus is people coming to know Jesus Christ. Your hand is on the plow and you're going to begin to work until he returns. No looking back. In Luke chapter 17, verse 24 through 36, there's a warning. It says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. You remember Lot's wife? God gave her this opportunity for deliverance. God gave her this opportunity to start over. God gave her this opportunity for, so that she could be smacking the will of, in the middle of his plan for her life. And she's headed out. Deliverance come. The angels begin to take them out of that city before judgment comes. And what does she do? What does she do, church? She looked back. She was actually sad to let go of that sinful place that God had brought her out of. You know what I always say? Whoever looks back stays back. You look back, you stay back. Keep moving forward. Keep your eye on what God is doing now, on what God is wanting to do through your life from now on. Jesus also said that in, I want us to go to John chapter 13, verse 35, that if we're going to have him as number one, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it says that we're going to have to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
Do you know how many times in the New Testament we're commanded to love one another, specifically that phrase, love one another? 17 times. It's not something that appears once, twice, three times, four times, five times. It doesn't appear six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, or 12 times. Not 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 times. We're told to love one another. In other words, anybody that has Jesus Christ as the number one person in their life has this great understanding that they now love his church. They love the body of Christ. They love their brother and sister. And when I talk about loving, um, I'm not just talking about an emotion or a pleasant feeling. I'm talking about the standard that Jesus set with love. It says, you will know that men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And then he says, as I have loved you, you love one another. So we don't even get to decide how to love each other. We have to love each other. How? How Jesus has loved us. That's the standard. So if somebody doesn't love me back, or somebody doesn't love me as often, or someone doesn't love me as deeply, that doesn't matter. I belong to Jesus. He's number one in my life. And I have to love you as he has loved me. He's the standard. He decides. That's what a disciple understands. Jesus Christ is number one in my life. Therefore, I must love my brother. I must love my sister as he has loved me. He set a new standard for them. In in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Peter says, above all, above all. And there's a lot going on when Peter says above all. He says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So we're to love each other the way that Jesus uh, loves us. And we're to love each other through offenses, through weaknesses, through failings. It says it covers a multitude of sins. So when I meet you and I come into relationship with you as my brother, my sister in Christ, I don't get to say to you, you've got one chance to get this right. You've got two, you've got three chances to get this right. You have a multitude of times to get this right. Because love covers a multitude of sins. I have to love you the way that Jesus loved me. And so it covers a multitude of sins. A lot less churches would divide. A lot less people would um, break up ministry teams or abandon churches if they understood that we're called to love each other as Jesus loved us. And we're called to love each other in such a way that love covers a multitude of sins. We forgive and we forgive and we forgive and we forgive again. Hallelujah. That's what it means for him to be number one, a commitment to loving each other. I understand that there is, um, there's boundaries. I understand there's things that are proper. I understand that church discipline must be practiced. I believe in all of that. But what I'm talking about is that Jesus has called us to love each other as he has loved us. And that that love should go so deep. It says to love each other so deeply that we can hurt each other more than once and still be in relationship relationship and still love each other and say, man, we've come through a lot together. Amen. See, if, if we say the first time you offend me, I'm gone. The second time you offend me, 
I can't deal with you anymore. No, no, no. Multitude of times. So he sets a new standard. We're to love each other as he has loved us. We're to love deeply because it covers a multitude of sins. And then in 1 John 3, 16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We ought to love in such a way where we lay down our lives for each other. Now, this is another one of those scriptures that we oftentimes in America just kind of slide over. But I like to um, keep up with the ministry that's called the Voice of the Martyrs. This last year, we had them come in and speak to our church. I like to read their magazines. It's not comfortable. It's kind of heavy when you read them, but they report to you constantly about what Christians are suffering around the world. And I'm sharing this because in one of them, it talked about, um, I don't remember what country it was, but basically where the church is an underground church and how there are some brothers and sisters, oftentimes one will be captured. And one of the first things that the torturers will do and those that, are, that have them under captivity is, is start hammering them about where does everyone meet? Where are all your leaders? Where are all these house churches? And many, many times when um, you have these believers that are captured, and they were specifically sharing in an article of a brother that laid his li- gave his life up before he would disclose where the secret meetings were at. I will die before I tell you the locations of these underground meetings. Jesus said that this is how we know what love is. I'm sorry. John said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And sometimes I'm just so uh, 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 kind of shocked how we here in America will get upset if we have to give somebody a ride to church and halfway around the world, they're trying to decide whether or not they live or die to disclose where you're having Bible study. Love each other so deeply that we're willing to lay our lives down for each other. This is what it looks like when Jesus Christ is number one. It is, it is much farther and deeper than oftentimes we understand. And the Holy Spirit wants to give us understanding that he is calling us to have Jesus Christ as number one. And that love for Jesus is going to manifest itself repeatedly in sacrificing for our brethren. We do it because we love him. And when we love him, we love each other. You know, I was, I was down here while we were worshiping And as I was down there just kind of worshiping with with all of us here together, I felt this love for you. And several times when I go to different churches, I'll experience that. And and it's something I don't really, it's kind of something I just kind of keep to myself, but I just felt led to share that right now. I'll walk into a church where I don't really know anyone, and the Holy Spirit often just overwhelms me with this great sense of love. And I think to myself, we're one. Those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. I may not know them by name, but how I love them. See, God wants us to experience what when we love him, we love the church. When we love him, we love the church. We fight for the church. We work with the church. We cry with the church. We build the church. We expand the church. We lay everything down for the church because we're the bride of Christ. 
And if he loves us so much that he's coming back for us, shouldn't we love each other deeply too? And we all know that when this plays out, it requires self-denial, right? It's one thing if I said right now, worship team, come up, and let's sing everybody love one another, and we all give each other a hug. That's one thing. But what happens when we actually have to start laying our lives down for each other? See, I pray in the name of Jesus that these these words would pursue us to those moments when God wants to ask something of us outside of here. Because he's going to. Hallelujah. So love one another, love each other with a fervent love. I I don't have time to get into 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 14. There are so many, and and, and I'm just going to tell you if you're taking notes or anything. In 1 John chapter 3, it repeatedly tells us what loving each other looks like. And it's not for the weak and it's not for the weary. When we look at what loving each other really looks like, we really realize how much God requires of us to share with one another. Um, In 1 John chapter 4, it says that we're to love one another. And that famous verse that is often put in songs, it says that whoever is born of God loves, but who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We can't claim to even know him, let alone say he's number one. If we don't love, because he is love and love's going to flow out of us and we're going to feel drawn and pushed and, and, and taken into loving other people with everything that we are. Another thing that Jesus said, I have two more things that Jesus said that are requirements of being his disciple. He said in John chapter eight, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. If we say that Jesus is number one in our lives, we have a strong relationship with the word of God. Not only do we read it, we breathe it, we eat it, we abide in it. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Real discipleship requires a continuance, a perseverance, a commitment to learning the word of God. You know what? You can start out strong in your walk with the Lord and end up weak in the end. How many of you know that? That you can start out running fast and hard and furious and then kind of peter out at the end of your walk with the Lord. You know, one of the things that gives you stability, one of the things that gives you endurance is to abide in the word of God, to really know the word of God, to believe it and really say it's my authority and to be committed to constantly learning the word of God. So oftentimes pastors don't understand why they'll set out discipleship classes or they'll, they'll set out opportunities for people to come and really get their hands dirty and really get into scripture and memorize. And people are like, come on, we need to live the gospel. I'm going to have time for that. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to abide in my word. How can you abide in the word of God if you don't even know it? Most of us can quote more songs, including secular ones, than scriptures. We need to know the word of God. And if we know the word of God, we're going to abide in the word of God. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be evidence that he's number one. One of the things that the Holy Spirit has brought conviction to my life is that last year, I confess to you, I read my Bible very little on a personal level. 
I read it a lot for preaching purposes. I read it for Bible study purposes. I read it for when I visited people. I read it from the pulpit. I read it in that context of ministering, ministering, ministering. But Maria shut away in her room just reading, reading, reading. I had started to neglect that and I felt it. I felt the impact on my personal life. And then the Holy Spirit just began to call me back into studying the scripture. The Lord says, you need more. And so I signed up for some college courses. And as I'm reading, I just felt like every time that I would go do my homework for this college course, every time I would go do my homework for my Bible class, I'd sit there and I'd just feel like, oh, just so much. I feel so overwhelmed. I think we forget how amazing this book is. How never-ending, how limitless it is, how life-giving it is. If you say, Jesus, you're number one in my life, be number one in my life, it's more than a feeling, church. It's more than a song. It's actually going to affect your schedule. You're going to have to find time in your schedule to read the Bible. You're going to have to find time in your schedule to minister to other people. You're going to have to find time in your schedule to pray more. If Jesus is number one, it's going to require a change in your lifestyle. And you can make that change. The Spirit's calling you to that change. Amen? If you abide in my words, you are my disciples indeed. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Psalms 19.8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Church, the word of God is so beautiful. So oftentimes we say to ourselves, oh, but I just get discouraged because I don't know what to read. I don't know how to read. Just open it. Just open it and just start reading. If you need help as far as studying it, I'm sure in your church you have, you know, you've got your pastor, you've got leaders, you've got resources, but, but don't let anything, no excuse, don't let any excuse crop up that would stop you from opening the word of God and developing a strong commitment to learning scripture. The Bible says in Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. A lot of less uh, falling would happen in our lives if we were committed to scripture. And oftentimes it's hard for us to admit that we're not very committed to the Bible, but we're not. We're really not, you know, again, back to the voice of the martyrs. When um, they came and spoke at our church, they were talking about how um, in in one of the Asian countries, literally there, there will be, there's groups of people that will walk, walk, not a bicycle, not a train, walk three days to see a Bible, not to take it home, to see it. So when, when the speakers come, They'll open up the Bible and they'll preach from the Bible. And then people want to be able just to look at it. Can I just look at it? Church, you and I can look at it in so many different versions. We can look at it on the internet. We can look at it on our phone. You know, I I have a young adult cell group. And um, I'll say, you know, turn. I used to say when we started turning your Bibles to John chapter, you know, 2. Now I'll say, and I say it from the pulpit now, I'll say, turn in your Bibles or your electronic Bibles, whatever you may have, too. And I think how quickly we have access to Scripture. In seconds, the people in my Bible study will have the Scripture I'm quoting, and they can read it quickly. I also have a bilingual group, a multilingual group. 
had a couple people there with French and a couple times the people with Portuguese came and I said, turn in your Bibles or your electronic Bibles within seconds. We all had the scripture in three different languages. Do you know the access that we have? It's mind-blowing the access that we have to scripture. And Jesus says that his disciples are going to abide in it. They're going to love it. They're going to want it. First Corinthians um, chapter nine, verse 24 says, do you, know not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the price? Run in such a way that you may win. Why do I read that scripture? Because I want to encourage us as we're pursuing having Jesus Christ as number one in our lives to pursue it with everything. Pursue it like you're in a race. Pursue it like you're going to be the one to win. Now, I don't know if you have a competitive personality, but I do. I like to win. If we're going to play a game and you could be the other night, we had some friends over and my daughter and I, anybody ever played spoons? Okay. Well, we didn't. We didn't have the spoons, so we used straws. And I had my son on my right and my daughter on my left. And all of a sudden, my son and I reached for that straw at the same time. And I stood up and I pushed the young man out of the way. I said, I got it. And so he was like, man, mom. I'm like, listen, I've got the straw, buddy, you're out. And then we kept playing, we kept playing. And all of a sudden, somebody grabbed a straw and my daughter grabbed it and I grabbed it and I felt her start to pull. And I stood up and I pulled it. I said, yes, I got the straw. And they're like, man, mom. I'm like, we're here to win people. Okay, this is not, that's how we ought to pursue our relationship with Jesus Christ, to win, to win. That, you know, to be able to cross the finish line and say, Lord Jesus, you were number one in my life. And I love your word. I abide in your word. I know your word. It brings life into me. This is what it means. It says, therefore, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which should so easily entangle us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, while we were in worship, one of the things that the Holy Spirit kept speaking to me was that there are some things in our lives here and some of you in in all of our lives, but I, I felt some of you needed to hear this. God says you can start over. God says, start over. I don't care if your hair is gray. I don't care if you're older. I don't care if you're younger and you've, 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 you've said, oh my goodness, I've prayed that prayer of recommitment 20 million times. I don't care. God says, start over. I'm not done. Church, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that ran the race that were fit for the kingdom, that paid the price, that put him number one. And so you and I tonight need to let go of those things that entangle us. We need to let God set us free from sin. We need to let go of the weights that are over us, the past hurts, those things that bring us down. Release them and let them go and get back in the race. And run like you're going to win. Look, maybe you're sitting here today and say, I've been disappointed in my life. My father, my mother, my sister, my brother, my this, my that. Let me down. But Jesus has never let you down. He's been there all along. And he's calling you to get back in the race and run again. And run like you want to win. Run, church beam, number one. But go into it with understanding. Jesus, if I'm saying you're number one, this has got to go, that's got to go, this has got to go, that's got to go. But Jesus, be number one. You know, he will never, never, never fail you. 
The other day I was preaching a sermon in church and I talked about disappointment. And I said, you know what? God never disappoints us. There is no disappointment in God. When you think about disappointments, disappointments come through us, our human failings. Disappointments come through other people's failings. But we are never, ever disappointed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He always keeps his word. When we're unfaithful, he's faithful. He picks up the pieces when we break them. He turns, you know, he restores the years that the locust has stolen. He's never, ever, ever late. There is no disappointment in God. And Satan sometimes comes and he tricks us and he tells us, you know, don't get back in a strong walk with the Lord. Don't get back in the race because, you know, it didn't go well last time. You know, and and we start to doubt ourselves and, and we sometimes confuse it that somehow God let us down. But God has never let you down. Never. He's never let me down. Run again. Run again. Amen. Hallelujah. So I want to say to you the last thing that Jesus said is a requirement to be his disciple. It's found in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. And in all these verses that I'm reading to you where Jesus requires this, I I said this before, but I'll say it again. He says that you must do these things. It's not an option. It says, so then none of you can be my disciple. He says, he actually starts by saying, you can't be my disciple unless you do not give up all your possessions. In Luke chapter 14, 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his own possessions. Your translation might say what you have, but the the root word literally means possessions. It means something physical that you have a legal ownership of. This is why some translations say possessions. And so unless you are willing to give up all of your possessions, you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That means he's not number one in your life. So you say, well, what is that? How does that translate? What does that look like? It means that you have to decide what your relationship is going to be with your things. You know, we all have things, right? Everybody here have a phone. Almost everybody here has a phone. We have shoes, cars, couches, Can somebody raise their hand and tell me something that they own that they really like? And don't worry, I'm not looking for something deep and spiritual. I'm just talking about some possession, a teddy bear that your grandpa gave you or something. Can somebody give me an example of something that you own that you really like? Yes. Pardon? I can't hear him. His guitar. Oh, musicians. Those possessions are so, you know, musicians don't like to loan their instruments, do they? Mm -mm, Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Precious possession. Something else. A possession that you own. Yes. Pardon? Your bed. Oh, man, at the end of the day, you hit the bed and you're like, yes. You know, I travel sometimes and I'll go to a hotel and I just can't wait to get home and just get into my bed. I totally understand the preciousness of that possession. What else? One more person. Something that you possess, house, car, anything. Yes. The clothes on your back. That's right. So we all have these things, right? 
And it's not wrong to have these things, but we're going to have to decide if Jesus is number one, how important these things are and what our relationship is going to be with these things. And we have to literally renounce all of these things. Now, I don't mean that we should symbolically renounce them. I mean, we should renounce these things and say, I no longer need them. They're not mine, Lord. They're yours. This is what I say about our possessions. Our possessions are blessings from God. And they have a utilitarian purpose. They're to be used um, for different reasons. If it's your phone to communicate, if it's your bed to sleep in, if it's your clothes to keep you warm, if it's your guitar in order to make music, these are things that God gives us and they're good and they're wonderful and we own them, but they should never own us. Never, never own us. We should always be willing to abandon them and let them go. So I'm actually going to encourage you tonight when we pray here at the end to renounce your possessions, to say, God, you can have it. You know, I'm so excited when my husband and I bought a house three years ago. We, we, I, I, you know, we had never owned a home before. So it was the first home that we owned and I like to decorate. So I right away started decorating and I just, you know, I love my house and I love this. But I remember one day I was standing there looking at my house and I said, Jesus, I renounce this house. This house is not mine. It's yours. If you ask me to move, to leave this house, to sell this house, I will do it. And I went through this process in my home where I went through all of my things and I said, I renounce it, I renounce it, I renounce it, I renounce it. Now, Lord, if you want me to use them, I'll use them. This is the house you want me to live in? I'll live in this house. These are the shoes you want me to use tonight? I'll use these shoes. But these things don't own me. And Jesus said that if we don't seriously go through that process and renounce all of our possessions, that we cannot be his disciples. You know the story of the the rich young ruler, right? Where Jesus challenged him in the area of renouncing his possessions, literally selling his possessions in order and giving it all to the poor in order to follow Jesus. And he couldn't do it. It's easy to say it even where I'm standing here tonight, but we all know that we get emotionally attached to our possessions, don't we? We like our things. It's a natural feeling. But you and I have to renounce all that we own in order for Jesus Christ to be number one because you never know when God is going to ask you to give something up for his glory. He could ask you to give something up because he's asking you to move or he could ask you to give something up and sell it so that someone else can have their needs met. Do you remember the primitive church? What does the Bible say that happened It says that they would sell their property so that no one would have a need. Are you able to sell things that you own in order to meet a financial need in someone else's life? Could you sell your guitar? Could you sell your bed? Could you sell your clothes? Could you sell all of these things if the spirit asked you to give an offering of some sort to someone in need and you said, God, I don't have anything in my account. Don't go into debt. But you know what? You can sell something and give it. Are we that given over to the Lord? Are we that, um, is our relationship so proper with our possessions that we literally can let them go when the spirit of the Lord requires them for the kingdom? That's what it means for him to be number one. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to be number one. I'm going to go ahead and end here. For Jesus Christ to be number one in our lives is clearly defined in scripture. It's not what we say. We we don't decide what it looks like. He says what it looks like. He's the number one relationship in our lives. 
If Jesus Christ is number one, then we have to deny ourselves. If Jesus Christ is number one, then we have to be willing to die for him. If Jesus Christ is number one, then we have to be willing to follow him wherever he leads and follow him for the rest of our lives. If Jesus Christ is number one, then we're going to love each other deeply. If Jesus Christ is number one, then it means that we're going to actually renounce all of our possessions and we're going to say none of these things own me anymore. They are just simply blessings, temporary blessings that God has given me. If we're going to have Jesus as number one in our lives, we're going to have a deep commitment to Scripture. A deep commitment to Scripture. You know, loving Scripture and knowing Scripture should be a priority in our lives because it keeps us out of error. If we know the Word of God and we can handle it properly, it doesn't matter how much false doctrine or error is flowing or floating around, we will remain solidly planted in the truth when we know the Word of God. So I want to encourage you. I know I said a lot tonight. There was a lot of points there. But I really want to encourage you in this to think about what it means for Jesus to be number one. And think about all these different things that Jesus said were requirements. And ask yourself, are any of those things real in my life right now? And if they're not, he's not number one. And if he's not number one, don't get discouraged and walk here with your head down low. If, 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 if he's not number one based on the requirements that he's given, say, thank you, God, for bringing me tonight to this place where you made it plain to me what you expect. This is what you're asking of me. And then surrender to the Lord and let him be number one. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. You know, the Holy Spirit is... Um, wanting to move in your church in a fresh way. I I sense that so strongly tonight. There's just something, Pastor King, that's different this time. There's just, the Spirit of the Lord is, is, is wanting to increase his power and freedom in this place. There is a call of the Lord for you guys to go deeper and farther in your commitment with him. And how many of you want to take some time right now to pray and say, Holy Spirit, would you show me what it looks like for Jesus to be number one? I want to do that for a few minutes right now. So why don't we go ahead and stand? Let's go ahead and stand right now. I just take some time and say, Lord, would you show me if you're number one or not? Right now, I want to invite you. Right now, I want to invite you to just begin to say, Lord, I want you to be number one in my life. But I want it to look like what you said it looks like. I want to be a disciple. I want to be named among those that are fit for the kingdom. And ask the Holy Spirit right now to come and show you those things in your life. Ask him to come and show you those things in your life that need to go. The things that need to fall away. Don't be afraid to do it. Don't feel overwhelmed by doing it. Let the Holy Spirit begin to speak to your heart right now. God wants to restore your walk with him. God wants to restore your walk with him. Some of you that are here tonight are are backslidden. And some of you haven't been walking with the Lord closely for a very long time. But the Spirit of the Lord is calling you close, close to his heart. And God is showing if you will trust me. If you will take hold of my hand, I will give you a victorious walk. I will heal your heart. I will renew your mind. I will restore everything that Satan has stolen. I will deliver you from bitterness and from hurt. God says, I will fill you like you have never been filled before. 
There's some of you here tonight, they're not backslidden. You're walking committed to the Lord. And the Lord is calling you to a greater level of sacrifice. And if that's you, say, Lord, I'm ready for it. Say, Lord, if there's anything in my life that you want to ask of me, take it. And I just want you to go through those things right now. Your possessions. Go ahead and say, Lord, I renounce my possessions. Look at your schedule and say, Lord, is there anything you want to change in my schedule? Do you want me to spend more time with you? Do you want me to read my word more? You know, some of you might have a leading of the spirit, you know, to go into a Bible class or to study the word of God deeply. You know, the spirit is stirring that in you for a reason. He wants to be number one in your life. Wherever you're at, if you're strong with the Lord, if you're, if you're weak in the Lord tonight, if you're frightened or, or full of faith, wherever you might be right now, the Spirit of the Lord is calling you to come after Him and to make Him number one in your life. Respond wherever you're at in the Lord. Wherever you're at in the Lord. Say, Lord, I want more. I'm hungry for you. God, I'm thirsty for you. I want you to fill my life with your spirit. I want you to set me free. I want you to set me on fire. God, take over, take over, take over, take over. Just pray that the spirit of the Lord is going to answer you. The spirit of the Lord is moving in this place. He didn't bring you here tonight to send you away hungry. He didn't bring you here tonight to send you away thirsty. He came here to satisfy that need in your spirit. He came to satisfy the longing of your heart. He came to pour himself into you. This is a time set apart to be in his presence, to be filled by God, to feel renewed by God. So go ahead and freely raise your hands, kneel, do what you have to do, but get what God has for you. God is an abundant God. God is a loving God. And he's pouring himself into you right now. He's pouring himself into you right now. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Renew us, Holy Spirit. Hallelujah, God, I give you praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Renew, renew, renew your church, God. Renew your church, God. Renew your people, God. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, renewal, renewal and revival. Renewal and revival is coming to your church. Renewal and revival is going to start lighting itself up in this place. It's not, a, it's not just something that's in your mind. The Spirit of the Lord's been stirring you. He's going to satisfy it. He's going to satisfy the stirring of your spirits. Don't be afraid. God's not going to disappoint you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Receive what the Lord has. Oh, he has come to dance among his people tonight. He has come to feed his children. Hallelujah, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Would you fill us, Lord? Fill us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Lord, we came to be filled. We came to sit at your feet, Jesus. Oh, move among us, Lord. Move among us, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Make us disciples, Lord. Precious presence of the Lord. Precious presence of the Lord. Precious presence of the Lord. Beautiful presence of the Lord. Don't go. Beautiful presence of the Lord. Don't go. Fill us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Till we're overflowing. Till we're overflowing. Till you're everything. Take over, Lord.
love him. He's listening. He sits enthroned on your praise. Yes, Jesus. God loves you, loves you, loves you. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. More, 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 Lord, more of what you have. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Holy Spirit, move among your people. Oh, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Oh, Holy Spirit, that you would visit this church. No, don't visit. Increase your presence. You're already here. Increase your presence in this place. Vision, God, for this next year and the years to come. Strength, God, for your people and the task you've called them to fulfill in this city. Oh, let your anointing rest in this place. Father, may every unsaved person that walks through those doors of this church. Father, may their ears be open and their eyes be open and may they fully understand the gospel as it's preached so that they have an opportunity to respond. Let your spirit move with power among your people here tonight. Closer walk, a closer walk. The Lord is calling you to a closer walk. I encourage you to write, say, Lord, would you give me a closer walk? I want a closer walk with you, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, the Lord is here. The Lord is here filling you. The Lord is here healing you. Let healing come, Jesus. Jesus, be number one. Be number one, Jesus. Number one, Jesus. Number one, Jesus. Holy Jesus. We love you, Jesus. I just feel like I just need to stay up here a few more minutes. The Spirit of the Lord just wants to pour His presence out a little more all over your heart, all over your mind. I feel the Holy Spirit is still dealing. Some of you are still praying and responding to the Word. The Holy Spirit brought conviction to your heart of the things that need to be uh, realigned, the things that need to be changed. And I encourage you just to keep praying in your seat and let the Spirit keep dealing with you as you begin to put Him first. You are going to put Him first. Hallelujah. He's going to satisfy that hunger in you. He's going to satisfy that thirst in you. God is not done. God is not done with you. His plan is still in play for your life. I speak hope into you right now. I speak hope into you right now. God is calling you out of your brokenness. God is calling you out of that long, long walk that you've had back into a fire for God. It's not too late. And for somebody here tonight, that's not too late. If you're here tonight and you say, I need to reignite, I need to recommit my life to the Lord. I know that I am, I am distant from God. My, my relationship with God is not where it needs to be. If that's you here, I'm going to invite you to come forward. I, and I'm going to ask you to come forward, not because I want to signal you out, but I want you to take some steps of faith. I want you to show the Lord that you're coming forward, that you're willing to let the Spirit of the Lord renew your walk. That you're willing for God to do something fresh. 
Holy Spirit. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh God, light the fire. Light the fire again. Restore their relationship with you to where it was. Father, may it never take step backwards again, God. May it always move forward. Move forward, hallelujah, Lord. Restore, restore. If you're here tonight and you're saying, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Be number one, Lord. Be number one, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. God, we give you praise. We give you praise. We give you praise. We give you praise. Refreshing wind of the Lord. Father, hear the prayers that are coming up before your presence right now. These prayers that are coming from the hearts of these men and women that is saying, Lord, take over. The heart that is crying and say, God, renew me. The heart that is saying, Lord, I want you to be number one. God, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would come on them and that your Holy Spirit would affirm in their spirits that you hear their prayer and that you're answering their prayer and that your forgiveness is there and your grace is there and that you're going to empower them when they leave this meeting to follow through on what they're praying tonight. In Jesus' name, God. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, rain down. Rain, rain, rain down. Now, one more time, I just want you to lift up your hands. And I just say, Holy Spirit, would you refresh and renew me? Because he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. He's here in the to the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Refreshing wind of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank 
Thank you, Jesus. Could we, worship team, could we just give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. I mean, a clap that says, yes, Lord, I thank you, Jesus.